Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today's no exception. We've got a great guest, but first, a quick thank you to our sponsor. The Real Estate Espresso Podcast is brought to you by International Coffee Farms. International Coffee Farms grows and sells specialty coffee in Boquete, Panama. They now have 11 fully operational coffee farms and they are 100% sold out. They are accepting reservations for farm number 12. If the idea of owning a safe, diversified offshore investment is intriguing to you, check out International Coffee Farms at internationalcoffeefarms.com. That's internationalcoffeefarms.com. We are back. Here on the weekend edition, we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest, a dear friend, all the way from Southern California. Welcome to the show, Sepacom. Hey, Victor. It's a pleasure to be here. I love the podcast and appreciate everything you do to educate your listeners. Thank you, Sep. We've got to know each other over the last three or four years and I think established quite a strong friendship. So I know you well, but our listeners don't. Why don't you give a little bit of some of your background and how you got into this crazy world of real estate investing? Sure. So like you, I'm a former electrical engineer and I got into real estate investing approximately nine to 10 years ago after reading a purple book by Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, It wasn't the common one that everyone talks about, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It was actually Conspiracy of the Rich. And for me, it was the question that, you know, someone had asked me basically, did you know that the Federal Reserve is not Federal or Reserve Bank? And when they asked me that, I just paused for a minute. I had to think about that. It's like, well, no, I did not know that. I thought I'm going to work for these dollar bills that say Federal Reserve note that I'm, I'm actually trading my time for money and that money is a store of value. And I went down that rabbit hole of reading the Kisaki books, reading Creature from Jekyll Island and getting in touch with the, um, the real estate guys, that it didn't make sense to, to really keep going down that path uh, because inflation was working against me. And I, I only had 24 hours in a day and I couldn't add more time into my day. I had to find another way. So the thing that I really liked about kind of reading all these books and getting these ideas is seeing how real estate investing was, was a good hedge against inflation and it, the, the track record over history, even with the market cycles, recessions, market corrections, is that in the long run, having commodities and, and having real assets is a much better financial strategy than just working a job and hoping not to get fired and hoping to get a raise. <laughs> So that, uh, yeah, and then from there, kind of just went, kept learning and growing along the, along the way. You went pretty much straight into multifamily investing. Uh, you jumped in the deep end, so to speak. And it was quite a colorful experience for you, not necessarily the trial by fire that most people seek out. Why don't you give us a little bit about some of that transition? Yeah, I know you're really big on the philosophy of, of focusing on the team. And I had heard that. I didn't hear it from before. I remember Robert Helms had mentioned that about focus more first on your investor identity, then find the team to, to serve that investor identity, then find the marketplace that is the best fit, and then find the deal. And at the beginning, I was naive. I, I was a rookie, and I would focus on the deal first, then try to justify the market, then try to find a team that I thought could service that deal, and then learn the hard way that it wasn't a, a match from my investor identity. Earlier on, I wanted to be passive. I wanted things to be easy. I just wanted the, the cash flow to come in early every month, and I got a hard lesson realizing that when I realized I wasn't buying A, B, or C properties, I was buying Ds and Fs, and I got sold a bag of goods, and I, I had to find a way to make it work. So uh, the, the lesson was I the first couple properties uh, had a lot more evictions than I expected. I was buying, definitely how you talk about the line, buying on the wrong side of the line, buying deep inside the line. <laughs> 
having property management companies say, well, Sep, you can't change the neighborhood. You know, this, this is just the area. And, and they're right. It's, it, is, it is very difficult. Uh, at, the, at the beginning, I thought that buying real estate, servicing that real estate, like managing it was like when you have a Honda, you could have a Honda in California, you could take it to the dealership in California. That Honda knows how to service that. Uh, that Honda dealership knows how to service that Honda. Same thing if you take that Honda to Florida, Honda dealership, there's expertise and it's shared. So I, I thought that that was assumed in property management that any property management company can many, manage any rental property. Um, so the, the lesson was that um, there's definitely different managers for and different teams for different asset classes. And, and I had a misalignment and I think that was the recipe for, for failure over and over again. So to, to date, we've gone through about 12 property management companies. There's also been two instances where uh, I've been fired by my property management company. And uh, imagine you take your Honda to the dealership and the, the dealer says, no, we're not going to, we're not going to service your car, even though you're under warranty and everything, even though we have an agreement. So that it's a painful lesson and it's easy to point fingers and say, well, oh, it's the property manager's fault or it's, it's the tenants and all that. But in the end, it's the mindset is it's always the owner's fault and, and not having the right pieces in place. So I, I, I didn't want to go in the foreclosure. So it, it took a, long of, a lot of long nights and um, falling down and getting back up and trying to see what the lessons were. And over the years, we've been able to basically put together uh, systems to be able to identify those right management companies that would be a good fit for the product. And I, I feel like that's even way more important than the deal itself. You know, that's so profound. One of the things that we often discover is these lessons that become so obvious in hindsight that are, even though they're staring us in the face, you could see them if you choose to look when they're presenting themselves for the first time. You often don't see them until you see them in the rearview mirror. Yeah, and actually, that that reminds me of with my position with the property management companies. I know you've you've had to interview your teams too, but earlier on, when I would have a, an asset and just before closing, interviewing the property management companies, I would ask them three questions. I'd ask them, "What do you charge? What do you think about the property? And when can you start?" And then I would hire him. And then afterwards, I realized it wasn't a fit. This this management company was on the outskirts of what their specialty is, and I wasn't the right client. Now there's we run them through a hundred questions, and it's everything from what is their management philosophy where do they see their company like five ten years down the road very in-depth and it takes a long time to interview as it should just with any business right you want to interview the team the employees and the sponsors and everything up front not after signing the ink and having everyone already vested into the deal so i think having those difficult conversations up front definitely makes it so that the expectations are there so that everyone can be on the same page and and just to see the investment through and one of your recent episodes you even talked about and i hope i don't butcher this you, you said that there's uh, with problem deals it's not necessarily that there's something wrong with the deal. It's with the expectations at the beginning that have to be defined at the beginning. And I totally agree with that. Now, you've taken your portfolio in a slightly different direction. A lot of people start out with single family homes and then they go to duplexes and fourplex and then up into larger multifamily. You're kind of swimming in the opposite direction. I'm curious to know about that. When you and I talked about this the first time a couple of years ago, I was a little bit skeptical. And I'm curious to hear how it's turned out and some of the rationale behind that change. Yeah, and I appreciate the raw feedback that you gave. One of the qualities I like about you is you don't beat around in the bush. And um, and it's very easy for everyone to just kind of be on the surface. But you really do care and you give your honest opinion. So in, in my heart, I, I still consider myself a multifamily investor. My belief is that if you can manage multifamily, really every other asset class is, is um, can be managed. I feel like multifamily can be the easiest, especially when you're dealing with new construction A and B class. And it could also be on the hardest when you're dealing with C class, D class, F, Section 8. 
right? I mean, you, you, you can look in on that line. If you go deeper in, it's, it's, it's a philosophy, right? And the slumlords don't care about the properties or that particular side of town is not necessarily served. So my, my heart is multifamily, but even further, it's also, I think, just the value add, seeing, seeing the transitions of the, the neighborhoods. And it's amazing that we have Google Streets views and we can see how neighborhoods can turn uh, just by looking at the street. You could see something that looks like a you know, zombie apocalypse to, to looking like it, it's rejuvenated, that there's life. It's, you, you can go there and not have to necessarily wear a bulletproof vest anymore. So with the multifamily, um, the big way that I was able to learn, because I didn't learn this in engineering schools, was surrounding myself with successful investors like yourself, like the real estate guys like Ken McElroy. I noticed that Kenny had purchased something was like 10,000 apartments from the recession until a couple of years ago. And I, I noticed he, he started to slow things down a little bit. Uh, he was going after like value add C-class, wasn't doing a whole lot of development and he was getting outbid in 2008 to 2012 and all those value add lower income deals, they were buying a lot. And then they started noticing a lot of the like institutional money coming into there or a lot of uh, just people throwing money in the market. As those cap rates were compressing, he wasn't changing his acquisition criteria. They would just buy fewer deals and they were just waiting for the things to change basically. So instead of instead of lowering their expectations, they kept their standards and, and they wait for the right opportunity to come along. As we were looking for multifamily deals afterwards, we kind of started noticing the same thing. Yeah, you did a great exercise uh, here uh, this weekend with, with the class that you were teaching about uh, underwriting and it's so important. I mean, it wasn't until I had another syndicator explain to me underwriting, I, I really didn't see the full potential, but you had asked the entire audience that uh, basically to come up with all the expenses that they can think of for a particular deal. And a lot of times we think it's just rent and the mortgage and that's cash flow. And when you get people to think about those, all those possible expenses, the insurance, the CapEx and maintenance, a deal that might look good on performa ends up being pretty thin. And, and I could see a lot of those mindsets uh, shifting. So uh, what I was bringing that back to is as far as like the value add, we look for those types of opportunities. We were looking for those types of opportunities in multifamily and the way we were underwriting it, we felt conservative. If there is a recession, it, it would just became too thin and we were getting outbid. So we, we want to be in good landlord friendly, business friendly markets, good job growth, but it, it was becoming harder to find it in that particular type of multifamily that we were looking for. Following the trends, uh, Dr. Douglas Duncan with Fannie Mae had said that 90% of millennials uh, have the desire to live in a single family house. That doesn't mean that 90% of them can afford it. So most of them are probably still going to be in apartments. But for those who can afford it or who do have families or who who are basically looking for more space, they want to stay in that same neighborhood, but maybe they need more than um, 300 square feet. Maybe they want something a little bit bigger and they can afford that extra $50 or $100 uh, upside. That was kind of a, a paradigm shift. Is like, well, why don't we focus on serving those clientele? And instead of just buying onesie twosie houses, the going out after, off of the, uh, the portfolio concept. And it was really... As much as I don't like Wall Street, but Wall Street was a big help with defining this asset class since 2008 with the REITs and the hedge funds going and buying up hundreds of thousands of houses. They really created an asset class where non-institutional investors can invest in. You know, I think that's very smart. And when you look at the amount of student debt in the country, the average person is coming out of college with $39,000 of student debt. It's taking on average 21 years to pay that off. For those first 20 years of their career, are they out buying houses? Probably not. Many of them are going to be first-time buyers in their mid-40s. If you're a first-time buyer in your mid-40s, are you perhaps even going to be a lifelong renter? A lot of them will be. So the dynamics have shifted compared to what they were even just one generation ago. That shift changes the demand profile in the marketplace dramatically. People still want to live in houses even if they can't afford to own them themselves. 
Right. And and I'm on the philosophy, well, if they want to live in the houses, even if they can't afford it, why not just rent it to them? And and uh, instead of having it just be me, myself, the investor doing it, manage it the same way as an apartment complex. So, and there's there's pros and cons of, you know, the, of the multifamily investing and the single family investing. Um, and, and I think just the fact that single family is fragmented, uh, even Warren Buffett had said, I mean, he could buy, if he could buy a couple hundred thousand houses, he would. And that, that often gets quoted, but the second part of that quote, which I think is just as important, often gets overlooked. Mr. Buffett also said, the problem with houses and owning hundreds of thousands of houses is the management. You can't manage them like an apartment building. And he's absolutely right. You can, with, with an apartment complex, 300 units, you can have, you can support having on-site maintenance, on-site management, and you can deliver the best customer service to those tenants. Um, and that's, that's difficult with, with single family, especially if they're all scattered around. So there really has to be economies of scale. If, if, uh, if there's only, you know, investor only has one or two houses in one market, that's not really economies of scale. And that's, that's probably not going to be the top priority for a property management company or service. I, as you often say, you know, finding that um, maybe starting out small uh, is not the best way, but like, like Trump says, if you're going to think big, think, or if you're going to think why you might as well think big, right? So going after that, that optimization point, I think would be a good, um, good lesson for investors to keep in mind. Well, I know you've had the police called out to your properties a few times and you've been on the, the late night news and all of that. And is I'm guessing that hasn't happened too often in single-family homes. Surprisingly, it has. Um, so with, with multifamily, there's the element, I mean, with all those uh, economies of scales, it's amazing. And th- this isn't as much of a problem with A and B class, but, but still, if, if, if there's not a good team in place, if there's one bad tenant, one bad apple that goes in there, if there's one drug dealer, if there's one guy cooking a meth lab, if, if there's one person with a prostitution ring, it can turn that A to a B, right? So that it's, I, I, don't, um, I, I think we agree that there's not like an autopilot for that. And, and with the lower income properties, it's that that can be potentially more prevalent uh, with single family. Most of those types of issues that we've had, yes, we've had drive-by shootings. Uh, they've uh, more often than not, and I think it's greater than ninety percent of the time. It's with the tenants that we inherit because a lot of the buyer, a lot of the sellers that we buy the properties from, to be blunt, they think like slumlords. They're not thinking like investors. They're thinking that the tenant is an object and if they don't pay rent they just want to get them out of there if the tenant calls with the repair request they don't get it taken care of they they just they don't treat the tenant like a customer and and the investor knows that we get rewarded based on the level of service that we deliver to our our clients so we want to make sure that those tenants are taken care of and and that they have the good customer service that they want to renew just like on the multifamily leases so we we mimic that model well, there's a certain reciprocity if you want your tenants to treat your property with respect you have to treat them with respect Right. And, and that's regardless of where they are on that scale. If it's A-class, B-class, or C-class, uh, just because we have a C-class property management company managing a C-class property or B managing a B, uh, we still want to make sure that they feel like this is their home and that uh, it's not like a hierarchical relationship or they don't feel, we don't want them to feel that they're, uh, that they're just like an object in a house, basically. We don't want them to feel like they did with the previous owner who was owning that house or maybe the previous place that they were renting. We want them to go tell their friends. We want them to to go and renew their lease and just have a long-term relationship. I love that. Talk a little bit about the financial model. Certainly, investing in single-family homes is different. Uh, many of the banks underwrite them differently. Many of them underwrite them as residential as opposed to commercial. How have you cracked the code on that? So it's still very difficult, actually, with the single-family model. I, I live in California. We have uh, portfolios all across the U.S., and many of those, most of the portfolios are stabilized. Uh, the only ones that aren't are the new acquisitions, and we're in the process of it. But even those stabilized portfolios, 
I have never been able to get any bank in any of those states, in Florida, in Kansas City, in uh, Texas, to basically provide a loan, even though the numbers work, the property is stabilized, because as soon as I say I'm from California, they think bubble, they think speculator, they think 2007, 2008. And then the only other option for a while was, okay, well, Fannie and Freddie, uh, 10 property loan maximum. And it's, it's hard if you're doing portfolios to go beyond that. So so earlier with, with the REITs and the hedge funds getting into the space, they were buying up all these houses. They also wanted the financing as well. So there's there's actually quite a few uh, financing options. Freddie Mac actually tested a pilot program where they were offering similar multifamily financing to large portfolios, five million and up. Uh, they since shut down that program. It was more of just a test, but the the hedge funds are still offering financing. It's more expensive than multifamily, but um, there's there's several companies without saying any specific names, but they'll do 30 year amortization, interest rates higher, anywhere from like the mid six to you know seven percent range. They'll do non recourse, 10 year uh, fixed financing, and they're they're more asset based lenders. So if if the uh, if the investors are are kind of considering that option, I'm, I mean there's there's plenty of them out there, and uh, as as long as the deal can make sense even at the higher interest rate, then it should be able to work for everyone. That's a great insight because at the end of the day. You, financing is a critical element of any of these types of investments, and you don't want to have to do them one house at a time because that's just brain damage in terms of way too much paperwork. If you can get portfolio loans across an entire portfolio, now you can start to do what you said earlier, which is to actually manage it as if it was a multifamily. That's right. Absolutely right. So even before the portfolio loans became popular, this is still pretty recent, maybe the last like three, four years. But even before that, the sellers knew that it was limited too. So the, they knew that their only buyers were basically cash buyers. So they would be uh, tend to be a little more open to doing something creative, either reinvesting the deal with a seller financing structure if they want to do an equity situation. So that scarcity, the financing, has kind of allowed the that market on on a free market level to uh, to be able to adapt to it. And it's not every case, but it's there's been situations where that's happened as well. Fantastic. If folks want to get in touch. What's the best way? You can visit the website. It's uh, becominvestmentgroup.com. And uh, if you have any questions, then feel free to email me. And that's spelled B-E-K-A-M investmentgroup.com. Yes. Well, Sepp, great to catch up with you again. We've got a few more days here on the Investor Summit at Sea, and I'm excited for some of the sessions that are coming in the next couple of days. And for the listeners at home, have an awesome rest of your day. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.